Welcome to the Connective Health Podcast. My name is Ryan Hess, and I appreciate you being here. In particular, I appreciate you joining our mission of improving healthcare by connecting its disparate parts. In this podcast, we will explore how the new value-based care models bring together two historically antagonistic entities, providers and payers, while creating new areas of friction in the process. In particular, we will focus on the risk adjustment part. Risk adjustment is a critical element in implementing value-based care, as it essentially establishes how sick a panel of patients is and how much they might cost. Those are some really complex questions. Thankfully, we have brought together a pair of experts to help us sort through this. So let's welcome Dr. Jim Taylor and Ben Poling to the discussion. Ben, Jim, please introduce yourselves. My name is Jim Taylor. I'm a family physician of 30 plus years, moved to Denver and joined Kaiser Permanente and worked for them for 20 years and eventually got into leadership. But my pathway there also involved me becoming a certified coder. After Kaiser, I helped Iora set up, Iora Health out of Boston set up their Medicare Advantage program. And then uh, we accomplished some things that um, were ahead of the other provider groups. So Humana eventually hired me to be their their national medical director of their Medicare Advantage startups. Then I semi-retired and I'm doing mostly consulting now for different entities interested in that market. My name is Ben Haling. I've been working in the payer space for over 20 years on both the medical and pharmacy sides of the benefit. I've spent uh, a number of years at a national Medicare Advantage plan where I had the opportunity to be involved in the very early stages of risk adjustment as we know it today. So I've seen just about every angle of risk adjustment over the years. Um, Currently, I'm a consultant doing work primarily with health plans and vendors to health plans. Much of my work is at the intersection of healthcare finance and the business side of healthcare and associated quality and pulling all of those pieces together. Thank you for the backgrounds. All right, so let's get right into it. The topic du jour is risk adjustment. Why is it important? What does it mean to either the payer uh, or the provider? I think that's a great place to start. So Ben, let's start with you in terms of the payer side. Yeah, so when most people think of risk adjustment, their head immediately goes to Medicare Advantage. Um, So let me focus there. In Medicare Advantage, risk adjustment from payer perspective is a payment methodology that's intended to align payments with the associated financial risk that the payer is assuming. Um, Done properly, though, I feel the impact of risk adjustment can be far greater than just on a health plan's CMS capitated payments. Real quick tutorial on on risk adjustment for those who are new to it. Um, You know, each member is assigned a risk score and the risk of the member is predominantly based on two things. The first is the demographic factors such as the the age, sex, low income status, institutional status of the member. And then the other piece is the health conditions that a member has and is being treated for. So said differently, CMS pays more for a member who is older and sicker than a member who is younger and healthier, generally speaking. From a 
payer perspective, risk adjustment is intended to, and I'll put this in quotes, somewhat level the playing field, if you will, for plans that take on financially riskier members. You know, for example, there are some uh, plans, Medicare plans that are geared towards low-income beneficiaries who may be dealing with multiple comorbid medical conditions. Compare that to another plan offered in an area of higher incomes where people are generally healthy. The financial risk profile of those two populations are very different. So risk adjustment creates a more level playing field by recognizing those differences and paying more for certain members. The, the last thing I'll say, um, you know, the other thing that risk adjustment does from a payer perspective is it incentivizes identifying and treating what I call the whole member. So because plans are paid partially based on diagnosis codes, they are incented to have members fully evaluated and should be treated for all conditions rather than focusing on a singular issue at, at hand. Um, this certainly can be beneficial to the member when done properly. And by the way, I'd mentioned it also helps the health plan in other parts of the MA program, such as star ratings and other quality-based programs. So at a high level, to me, from a payer perspective, that's what risk adjustment is and, and why it's important to, to health plans today. Send to you, Jim, from a provider perspective, what what would you say? So I've been this in this area for um, 20 years. And I can tell you from a pro provider perspective, risk adjustment um, initially wasn't important. And why are you bothering me? I didn't go to medical school for this. Why are you interrupting me? From, from the risk adjustment perspective, we had more of, of a culture change because it was going from the fee-for-service model to a um, value-based care model and that um, most docs go kicking and screaming. So initially, they didn't see the value of risk adjustment, but once they understood the why and understood the model a little bit better, they saw advantages and one is that it did indeed level the playing field. So especially in a large organization, we would staff our clinics similarly, but with risk adjustment, with them having RAF scores or a, a, a sick index for each patient of sorts, that helped us realize that some of our clinics really did need more help. They weren't just complaining that they were overburdened with really sick people. So that that helped Doc see the importance of risk adjustment in getting uh, better better resources uh, and being resourced better with different types of providers. An, an example would be adding mental health to a certain area that referred more to mental health because they were in a certain part of town versus a relatively healthy population out in uh, some of our suburbs in, in the Denver area. So that was a once they saw the advantage of leveling the playing field, that definitely uh, helped uh, get them to understand the what's in it for me. One of the uh, things that was not important to them, just because doctors are doctors, is treating the whole patient, treating the whole member 
they would say, I already do that. So how is risk adjustment going to help me? This isn't going to save any more lives. Once again, I didn't go to medical school for this and that whole litany of reasons why they shouldn't have to do it. But once we started in with treating the whole patient and doing data mining and showing quality gaps as well as documentation gaps, they started seeing the value of it really does help. Now, I wouldn't say that was one of the major reasons why it helped, but a lot of the docs came to appreciate uh, reports that show that they really hadn't addressed something in a certain time period, primarily because they were focused on the latest acute catastrophic event that happened to the patient, not because they were um, not paying attention. They just get distracted with things higher up on the, the, the priority list. I thought two phrases in there really, really highlighted where some of the tension might be. So Ben started off by talking about from a payer perspective, this is just another payment model. This is a business. I take risk and then I pay out based on it. And I manage that as a payer. From Jim's perspective, as a doctor's perspective, it, it starts off with this isn't important to me. This isn't why I went to med school. But what are some of the other areas? So let's start with you again, Ben. What are some of the areas of tension that you see these new value-based care models bringing forth? Yeah, I guess a few things I would mention, Ryan. So again, going back to my earlier comment that risk adjustment is a payment methodology. When you're dealing with money, naturally, there's a built-in tension between parties that want a piece of that, that pie. So in this case, the, the payers and, and providers. So on one hand, you have health plans asking providers to take certain actions that impact the health plan's reimbursement. And on the other hand, you have providers saying, well, what's in it for me, including what's in it for me financially? And that can create tension. The good news is there are ways, I believe, to make this work by creating value-based payment arrangements that are not tied solely to risk adjustment, but rather to outcomes and quality improvements. Things like accurate risk adjustment coding combined with improved clinical, administrative, and member satisfaction quality outcomes. And as Dr. Taylor was alluding to, CMS has standardized programs such as you know, star ratings in Medicare that can serve as a basis for pieces of, of these arrangements. The other tension on the payment front that I've seen <clears throat> most recently is around risk adjustment data validation, often referred to as RADV. So CMS has always required plans to submit accurate risk adjustment diagnosis codes and delete codes that are not accurate. And if inaccuracies are found, CMS does have the authority to recover those overpayments. And again, this isn't a new requirement. It's, it's always been part of the program. But earlier this year, CMS finalized a RADV rule that indicates they'll be using RADV sample sizes. And if overpayments are found, CMS will extrapolate these recoveries across an entire contract. So rather than recovering money for a specific inaccuracy, they will extrapolate that recovery over a larger population. The tension that creates between health plans and providers is how or if health plans will account for that extrapolation in provider payments. You know, essentially, if CMS extrapolates recoveries across a health plan contract, how will that 
impact downstream provider payments. Again, though, as I mentioned earlier, if a provider is paid on quality outcomes across accurate coding and clinical and administrative quality and member satisfaction, I think that makes this process much less contentious. Um, you know, a, a, another significant tension between payers and providers in the risk adjustment space can be workflow disruption. We've all been in a provider office and seen providers running from visit room to visit room. They have their processes and tools in place to operate as efficiently and effectively as, as possible. In risk adjustment, health plans often want to present new information to the provider that may not be in their standard workflow, such as information from visits outside of that provider's system. I mean, I remember the time when this supplemental information was presented in paper form and inserted directly into a paper chart. And you were just hoping the provider would see it and, and take time to review and take action. Those days are long gone. Providers want information, I believe, that will help them care for the member better. But that information has to pre be presented in a way that's efficient and does not disrupt their workflow. Um, so that's been a, a tension between health plans and providers for some time and certainly something that needs to be, be solved for. Dr. Taylor, from your perspective, what are some of the tensions that risk adjustment is creating for providers? As Ben uh, talked about back in the day when we had all paper charts, it, it was easier to do, but less effective because you could attach reminders or whatever you wanted to to the pa patient's chart and and some docs would pay more attention than other docs the difficulty came when everyone switched over to electronic medical records the the reminders didn't come built in because most electronic medical records were built for the fee for service workflows rather than a uh, value based workflow so then we were putting paper in front of a doc while they were focused on a computer and having the two different types of media present just, just didn't work. Getting it as close as you can into the medical record is, is a huge benefit. So that, so that was one disruption that has slowly evolved over time, but people are still not anywhere close to where they need to be there to diminish that, that tension. I recoiled when, when Ben said, it's just another payment model. Once again, the culture change aspect is huge. When I started in medicine, it was you circled stuff on a super bill and magically got paid somehow without proving anything. And the only one in the chart was me and the patient. Now everybody's in the chart. So it's a completely different dynamic. People looking for quality measures and um, HCCs and RAF scores and all those types of things. So it's just, you know, that... The old medicine paradigm to the new value-based paradigm is, is a difficult shift. The other things that um, Ben talked about is the, the RADV, Risk Adjustment Data Validation. I'm a um, certified risk coder as well as a you know board-certified family physician. So I was involved in Kaiser Permanente's RADV audits, and then we did our own mock RADV audits, and it, it was a it was a different world before they started the extrapolation. 
So we won't get into if it's a fair model or not fair model. Everyone will have their own opinion. It'll be interesting to see what it looks like when it actually comes out. But doing the RADV puts the onus on providers to make sure that they give the health plans good data. In the fee-for-service world, what diagnosis I checked on the super bill didn't matter as long as it passed a software edit, which just about anywhere diagnosis close to being correct was okay. It just didn't matter. So we didn't, we only had so many diagnoses on our super bill. Well, now there's thousands of diagnoses that are in the HCC model and which one you pick makes a big difference in payment sometimes, um, sometimes tenfold in payment. So you better be accurate and not misrepresent because that, um, if it gets passed through the government, becomes a fraudulent claim. It's similar to back in the CPT world where if you said you injected a knee but didn't do it and billed for it, it would be like billing for a procedure you didn't do there's not a lot of difference in the government's eyes that you're submitting a diagnosis for reimbursement that the patient does not have. Other tension that arrives are that some of the some of the diagnoses that are in the payment model don't make any sense to doctors why they would be in the payment model. Some of the recent changes have minimized that, but trying to tell a doctor it's important to say. I, I call it magic words. When I would train the docs that it's a magic word, you don't get your payment unless you say it. We never say that word, but that's a coding rule, not a clinical rule. So the coding in clinical worlds clash and we have to train the docs to say things they, that, that they wouldn't otherwise say. An example would be hepatitis C. If you have acute hepatitis C, you don't know it and your doctor doesn't know it. So anytime a patient has hepatitis C, it came through a blood test, they're asymptomatic and we need to treat it because it might turn into cancer. So when I say hepatitis C, the only thing I mean is chronic, but yet the coders will come and tell me that I have to say chronic for no apparent reason because clinically I'm addressing the patient's needs. But if I don't say it, the payer misses out on a $3,500 payment. Similarly, with major depression, if you don't say the mild, moderate, severe, or in remission, I'm treating the patient. They're getting good, getting good care. They're improving. So why do I have to say mild, moderate, or severe? And the answer is, well, that's those are the diagnoses that are in the payment model. So it brings what doctors would see as needless documentation. You know, I, I think I'm done with my whining about the tensions that are there. A lot of it is the, the, the payment model doesn't always align itself with good clinical care. Overall, it does significantly. But um, if somebody's looking to criticize um, anything, it doesn't take much to get them going on something that doesn't happen that often, as though it did happen a lot, just so that they can um, rail against the new payment model. I think that's uh, that's a great perspective, and I think that you know where you ended. Providers get really uh, appropriately upset about some of this. So at this point, we've gone deep into risk adjustment, why it is important, and what tension points exist between payers and providers. In our next episode, we will delve deeper into the landscape of solutions available to payers and providers. 
Dr. Jim Taylor and Ben Paling will again help us navigate these waters in episode two of the Connective Health Podcast. Thank you for joining us on the journey of improving healthcare, and thank you for listening.